Lord say amen. amen. Let all of those who are called according to his infallible purpose say amen one more time. How blessed are we to be in the house of God, to learn from the word of God, to then be empowered by the promises of God. We are sure enough blessed. The pulpit is thankful to the brethren who've already given the word, namely Brother Jones from Chicago, Illinois, Brother Clifford Florence, and if you close your eyes, you still heard Franklin Florence from Rochester, New York, and then to Dr. Lavelle Hayes from Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, he told you he's been sleeping in double beds all week. That's why he preached so strong. Say amen when you can. I'm thankful again to the executive committee of the National Lectureship for affording me this opportunity. We're thankful to the architect and the director of the 75th Annual Conference in its Diamond Jubilee, Minister Conley Gibbs, for the invitation not only to contribute, but also to again close the National Lectureship. And lastly, kudos and congratulations belongs to this year's honoree, uh, the senior preacher of the St. Louis metropolitan area, Dr. Ralph P. Smith, or as I call him affectionately, Uncle Ralph and Aunt Effie. Whatever is done for them, they are more than deserving. Now I'm going to tell you up front, due to the enormity of the message and the brevity of time, I want to jump directly into my text, and while the textual assignment is terse, the textual implications are in fact tremendous. Therefore, I will read verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12 with a concentration of only preaching verse number 1. If you want verse number 2, perhaps I'll preach it next year in Orlando. Meet me in Romans, Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, or tabernacle there at the first verse. Romans chapter 12, tabernacling there at the first verse. When you find yourself there, let's be standing for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Romans chapter 12, beginning there at verse number 1. Here, Paul, that meandering missionary, uh, records these words. The Bible says, therefore, that's 10 minutes right there. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in light of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That's as far as we're getting. Here's the overall context. Verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world and or this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I think Brother Conley Gibbs had an ice cube moment uh, when he assigned this text. Uh, so the topic I'm assigned is check yourself before you wreck yourself. But I want to subtopic this, when the church learns how to worship. When the church learns how to worship. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. 
Let us go to God in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for what was, what is, and what will be if we continually stay faithful. Father, bless everyone under the sound of my voice. Father, open their minds, their hearts, their spirits, their souls, and yes, even their ears to hear a word coming straight from you via your manservant. Your manservant is nothing but miraculously manufactured mud. So, Father, this time I ask that you allow dirt to speak to dirt so we may all clean up our dirty ways. Father, I am a sinner, so first of all, I ask for forgiveness of my own sins. And upon my repentant heart, Father, I ask that you now pin and place your words to speak to me and speak through me. Father, bless the word. Father, bless your servant. Father, bless us all as your children. All these things we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As our time just began together, check yourself before you wreck yourself. When the church learns how to worship. Paul in permanent and preeminent ink divides his Roman rhetorical rendering as he did in several other of his letters into two major sections, a doctrinal one and a practical one. He mirrored this also in Ephesians and Colossians where the separation of the doctrinal and practical sections are about 50-50, which is why some struggle to interpret the latter parts of both Ephesians and Colossians. But here in Romans, Paul spends more time in doctrine. And now in the last three chapters before his doxology, Paul transitions from instruction to exhortation. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 through 11 that you heard the gospel, especially beginning with Romans chapter 1 verse number 16. But here beginning in chapter number 12, we are called now to respond to that same gospel. And our response must be realized in sacrifice, worship, and Christological confirmation and transformation. For the gospel cannot construct until it first confronts. And once it confronts you, it will then conform you. And at the conclusion of its conformation is transformation. Preach flowers, I'll show him trying. So here in Romans chapter 12, verse number 1, we begin uh, culminating a doctrinal dissertation to now inaugurate an ethical expression a suitable sacrifice, and a willing worship. The first word in Romans chapter 12, verse number 1 is, therefore. Every preacher who's been preaching three sermons understands whenever you see the word therefore, you must ask the question, what is therefore? Therefore. The therefore in verse number 1 refers back not just to the previous argument of Romans chapter 11 about God's mercy and bringing salvation both to the Jew and the Gentile, but also to everything that Paul has been teaching from the inception of this same epistle. Therefore, now brings to the forefront man's proper ideology in the face of God's perfect theology, as it is God's theology that has allowed Romans chapter 1 verses, uh, Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 11 to have the overarching thematic thrust of 
sanctification, salvation, justification, redemption, no more condemnation, which now allows glorification and the culmination of perfection. And it's because of God's theology that has already been presented that now Paul calls on the Romans then and us now to have an ideology shift. Since God, through Christ Jesus, has shifted theology to a place where we can now internalize it. To then here in Romans chapter 12, to a place where we're called to externalize it in hopes of one day being able to eternalize it. The therefore here marks the transition from Paul's doctrinal dissertation as presented in the last 11 chapters to God's dutiful expectation as presented in Romans chapter 12 through 15. Simply stated, it's here that because God did that now we must do. Let me say it again. Because God did, now we must do. But all too often, this sense of duty alongside doctrine often refines the saint, but defines the sinner. Because there's too many Christians who know doctrine by the mile, but actuate duty by the inch. Preach flowers, they looking at you funny. They crave rules, but not responsibility. They crave roles, but not rigor. They want authority, but not accountability. They like to chastise, but never conform. Too many of us are Christian contradictions in that we are doctrinal, but not dutiful. Therefore, we like to receive from God, but never reform for God. And I purport to us on this afternoon that a lack of Christian duty negates our love for Christian doctrine. Understand, and yes, I'm still on the word therefore. Understand that this is the fourth instance and or the fourth iteration of therefore in the Roman letter. In Romans chapter 3, verse number 20, Paul presents the therefore of condemnation, declaring that the whole world is brought to the consciousness of sin and therefore guilty before God. In Romans chapter 5, verse number 1, Paul presents the therefore of justification, thus summarizing that since we've all been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through Christ Jesus. Thus, through Christ's death, we have exchanged enmity for eternity. In Romans chapter 8, verse number 1, Paul presents the therefore of assurance, meaning that if I get in Christ and stay in Christ, that I am safe from both penalty and punishment. For Christ serving as my propitiation changed my situation from death to life. And now here in Romans chapter 12 verse number 1, we have the therefore of dedication, meaning since God's theology has brought forth salvation and sanctification and justification on the way to glorification, then somebody ought to have some dedication. For in Christ I need to change my temporal ideology in light of God's eternal theology which was imprinted in eternity so I can be impacted in my presence. Therefore, here brings Roman contextual information toward a critical exhortation in hopes of a continual confirmation that will bring about a tremendous transformation as God then illuminates his preeminent plan for salvation. Do we now understand what therefore is therefore? 
All right, let's move on. Therefore, I urge or beg or beseech who you're talking to, Paul, everybody, the brothers and the sisters. I urge you, I beg you, I beseech you. What do you mean? One thought of this is to call to one side and instruct. Another examination of the text suggests that Paul not only wants the Romans to stand by him for instruction, but rather he wants to stand by them for encouragement. Paul, the same way that we're together in learning, Romans chapter 1 through 11, is the same way the family of God should stand next to each other in living. It's one thing to learn the word. It's a totally different thing to live the word. And if I'm ever going to live what I first learned, then every now and then I'm going to need to lean. I wish I had somebody in here. Lean on God. Lean on grace. And yes, every now and then, even lean on you. Brothers and sisters, why should I? Mm-hmm. Why should I? Uh, be so cognizant of what God has for me. The Bible says in view or in light of God's mercies. God's mercies in light or in view. Paul says, what I'm asking of you should be in light and in counterbalance of God's mercy, both in your life and over your life. For it was God who says that it was me who had mercy for you even before your mess. And it was I who was good ever before you ever did bad. Therefore, because of my mercy, because of my long suffering, because I knew you since the womb, you ought to want to do good real bad. I wish I had a church in here. In light of God's mercies, yes, it speaks toward compassion. Yes, it speaks toward pity. But here Paul defines mercy not by our emotions, but rather from the evidences that emote from the text. For the mercies, plural, of God have already been outlined in the previous 11 chapters of the text. Jeremy, show me God's mercies. Give me some script for that lip. I'm so glad you asked. Romans chapter 1, verse number 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God that brings salvation. That is a mercy to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the what? Righteousness. That's a mercy. As a matter of fact, righteousness is the pivotal miracle of mercy as it brings right standing for crooked people. The righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. That's a mercy. Just as it's written, the just shall live by faith. You want some more mercy? Romans chapter 3 verse number 21 but now apart from the law the righteousness of God has been revealed to which the law and the prophets testify this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all who are justified that's a mercy freely by his grace that's a mercy through the redemption that's a mercy 
mercy that came by Christ Jesus. God presents Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That's a mercy. You want some more mercy? Romans chapter 5, verse number 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have a peace. That's a mercy with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access. That's a mercy by faith into this grace of which we now stand. Verse number 6. You see at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse number 8. But God demonstrates his own love. That's a mercy for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. That's a mercy. Verse 9. Since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved? That's a mercy. You want some more mercy? Romans chapter 6. I wish I had somebody. Verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning, hoping that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Verse number 4. We were therefore buried with him in baptism in his death in order that just as Christ raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. That's a mercy. Verse 5. For if we've been unified with him in death like he is, we will surely be united with him in the resurrection. That's a mercy. Verse number 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That's a mercy. You want some more mercy? Romans chapter 7, verse number 24. What a wretched man am I who will rescue me from this body that is subjected to death. Thanks be to God. Why? Because he delivers me. That's a mercy. I only want to give you one more. Romans chapter 8, verse number 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. That's a mercy for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit has set you free. That's a mercy. Drop down to verse number 28. And we know that in all things God works together for the good who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Verse 30. And those he predestined, that's a mercy. He also called, that's a mercy. Those he called, he also justified, that's a mercy. And those he justified, he also glorified, that's a mercy. Just in case you thought millennials don't know the Bible. So, so, don't ever trivialize what God has for us to internalize. God doesn't just have mercy, but he has bequeathed to us mercies. Child of God, God says, I got a mercy for every mess. I got leniency for every letdown. I got sympathy for every screw-up, and I got forgiveness for every failure. God had a plan for me before I ever had a pitfall for myself. And I don't know about you on this afternoon, but I'm so glad. I said I'm so glad that God is better at saving than, rather, God is better at saving than I'll ever be at sinning. God is better at saving than I'll ever be at sinning. So therefore, after identifying God's mercy, Paul spends the balance of our terse text, defining what we should owe the Lord in light of all the mercies in our lives. First, Paul presents that I owe my soul with an obedience that brings about salvation. From there, I must give God my body, which extendedly speaks to me, giving God my way of life. From sacrificing my body and my way of life, then my mind will change. As I will take this information and reject worldly confirmation and adopt spiritual transformation, the Bible says that we are to offer and or we are to present 
our bodies as a living sacrifice. I'm already half finished, y'all. We should do it as a living sacrifice. The verb present in this verse means present once and fall. It demands a definite commitment of the body, not just one's flesh, but also one's faith. Present it to the Lord. It brings the word picture of a bride as she presents herself to the groom for a lifetime commitment. So we must therefore, as the bride of Christ, present ourselves unto him once and for all. If I had time, I would take a commercial break and say so much commotion is communicated at weddings as per the color of the dress of the bride. We understand that white equivocates purity. And there are some brides and there ought to be some grooms who may not feel pure as per their past. They might wear a color that is white, but at the same time, not white. Preach flowers, I show him trying. Folk out here trying to wear dresses that are off-white. Eggshell, ivory, alabaster, champagne, and white gold. Am I in the house on this morning? But I submit to anyone who needs to try Jesus on this afternoon that when you show up, to present yourselves eternally before the Lord, that it's all because of his blood that we are now blessed, and it's because of his stripes that we are now healed. Therefore, though my life would demand that my dress ought to be black and brown and red, I have a God who first said, if I, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. What you're trying to say, Jeremy, when it comes to presenting ourselves to God, if I just show up, then he'll allow me to glow up. Is there anybody in here who showed up to Jesus just as you were? You were stained in sin, discolored in depression, soiled in stress, polluted by problems, filthy in failure. But as you came in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ, everything became white in his sight. So that ought to encourage somebody on this afternoon that everybody who is present ought to be able to present themselves to God. Don't ever allow shame to negate the power of his name. For church, God will show out if we just show up. Present further means to surrender. It means to make useless in the presence of. Meaning what? My past is useless in his present. Place all of the body, all of me, all my ways, not just my flesh, but also my faith. Place everything on the altar, withholding nothing. Because he can't bless what I hold back. Therefore, I give him all of me. That includes my gossip and my gang affiliation. My drinking and my dirty thinking. My pimping and my player ways. Preach flowers, I'm in the right place. My stress and my mess. Present your bodies. Understand, ooh, time is moving. Uh, present your bodies. This is not a new exhortation. 
but rather a continuation of an old argument as was already presented in your own time on Romans chapter 12 verse and Romans chapter 6 verse number 12. Bodies in the Greek, yes, speaks of soma, but it speaks of the entire person, not just one's flesh, but also one's faith. It speaks of dedicating all of oneself. This is important to understand because it speaks of a sacrifice. God don't care about your organs, the organs of your carnal existence, but he does care about the organ, i.e. the mind of your eternal existence. Understand, presenting our soul brings salvation. Presenting our bodies brings forth sanctification. So the question then becomes, how many of us will transcend in our faith beyond the initiality of salvation for the actualization of sanctification? For salvation without sanctification will preclude one from glorification, which means there'll be no elevation. I want you to be a what? Living sacrifice. You and I are the only sacrifices that don't have to die. Our sacrifice does not have to kill us, but it has to evolve us. It's imperative that we be defined as a living sacrifice for the fact that since we're living and we lay down on the altar, it means it's voluntary. The Levitical victims were not voluntary. They had no choice whether or not to die. I choose to die, and if you're a real child of God, choosing to die means I gotta die daily. Therefore, us being a living sacrifice is pleasing and acceptable to God because it's voluntary in nature. If our sacrifice is to be made in light of his sacrifice, then we'll understand that his sacrifice will cover my sacrifice. Well, Jeremy, how can one be a sacrifice without a physical death? I'm so glad you asked. I believe it was Genesis chapter 22 dealing with Isaac. It was Isaac who willingly put himself on the altar. There was a point where he knew that he was to be the sacrifice and he still submitted his body to be bound and his mind to be subjected to the will of his father. And he would have even died in obedience to God's will, but the Lord sent a ram to take his place. But Isaac died just the same. Because God then and God now is not looking for a death of the outer man, but rather he's looking for a death of the inner man. I don't want or need to change your flesh, but I need to transform your feelings. I want to transform your character. I want to transform your resolve, and I want to transform your will. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that it was God who sent a ram to the mountain, but sent a lamb for us in this moment. It was Romans chapter 5 that says, while we were yet still powerless and still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. When I, just like Isaac, was bound up not by rope, but by rebelliousness. And the justice of the Lord was upon me like Abraham's knife. It was not Abraham, but Jesus who said, it is finished. And it was the lamb who took the hanging and the humiliation. It was the lamb who took the aggravation and degradation. It was the lamb who took the sarcasm and the spear. Therefore, I live today. I live life through yesterday's death. I'm saved because I sacrificed to his sacrifice. When I came to Christ, I crucified myself. And it was because of his death that I'm allowed to live as the walking dead. My old nature died. My hating heart died. My immorality died. Now, what are you supposed to be? Holy and pleasing. 
or acceptable to who? God. I ain't got time, but let me tell you something. We know in the Levitical system that any animal would not do. It had to be without spot. And it had to be without blemish. I'm so glad because I came in contact with the blood of Christ. I'm so glad because I gave myself as a living sacrifice that God took away the spots of my past. Meaning what? No matter where you used to spot me, my spots are now gone because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So now I'm holy and I'm pleasing and I'm acceptable. Why is this so important, Jeremy? It it is so important because we must understand the fact that we must learn how to sacrifice everything to God daily and understand what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, allowing us to be holy and pleasing and acceptable without spot, without blemish. So now I can lay as a voluntary living sacrifice on the altar. Why is it so important? Because I got to present myself to God. Why? Because this, that's the premier word, this is who your, this is individual, your reasonable or true and proper worship. Can I preach that and sit down? Can I preach that and sit down? Understand, it's pleasing and acceptable unto God. The only person that must be pleased with our life, with our sacrifice, with our worship, and with our transformation, is God. Stop measuring your race on man's statistics. For while everybody is running to the same finish line, we don't all have the same starting point. I don't know about you, but some of us on the track of life run in lane one, and then some of us got to run in lane eight. But we all trying to get to the same place. Some folk get to wear running shoes, and some folk ain't got no shoes. But we all trying to get to the same place and receive the same prize. Y'all don't like that. Let me give you another one. I'm so glad that salvation is like a game of golf. Regardless of the score, we all get to make it to the 18th hole. And I don't tell you, I don't have to tell you how many handicaps it took for me to get there. I'm so glad. That my sacrifice, by which is an extension of my worship, is to God and not to you. In the Old Testament, sacrifice was for show. And it was to show others that I'm holy. In the New Testament, as a living sacrifice, it's not for show, but rather for him to know that we're holy. This this alone, this living sacrifice, which is counterbalanced by God's mercy, must be first initiated before worship can be effectuated. Which means that many people who have gone to church have never been to worship. We have not yet sacrificed our minds, our bodies, our habits, our hang-ups, our pain, our proclivities. Therefore, we congregate as the congregation to have superficial church. But we've never experienced sacrificial worship. And it's not until we die by way of sacrifice that we can live for him and worship him. Yes, we can bow our heads in prayer and sing in soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. But we still have a throne-less worship. Because until we die to self, we're still subjects of the wrong kingdom. Somebody saying, well, I go to church every Sunday. I go to church every Wednesday. Yes, Satan will allow you to go to God's church. 
as long as he knows you're not a resident of God's kingdom. Which then further develops in the notes that worship is not a day or a time, but rather it's a deliverance and a transformation. Worship is not confined to a service, but rather our servitude is our worship. Worship is a lifestyle. So if worship is not on your agenda on Monday, then your praise is not valid on Sunday. So if you're worried about how much time worship should take, it should take as much time as it takes for you and I to be conformed and transformed and transfigured into the image of God. And if you can watch the Avengers on the big screen for almost three hours, then somebody ought to be able to spend three hours adoring the one who is the Avenger. This is your, it's personal, and I'm done now. Your what? Reasonable service. A reasonable and proper worship. I love how reasonable speaks of logical, speaks of rational, speaks of intelligent. I have no problem with praise, but high praise don't mean high worship. Just because you got happy don't mean you're getting holy. There is a logic of worship. There's intelligence of worship. It's not something I feel. Understand, it's your reasonable act of worship. Understand that true worship is not time to worship. Our entire lives on the altar is worship that is pleasing. Church, can I tell you something and I'm done? We can do all the right things and still not be the right people. We can put Christ on our buildings, but not in our hearts. We can not call our preacher pastor, but still cater to every sinful desire. We can sing without use of mechanical instruments, as if that's the main command, and still fail to love each other. So if we're loveless people and lack the fruit of the Spirit, even though we're a cappella, are we really living a life of worship? Worship is more than what we call ourselves, but it ought to be who we really are and who we really are all the time. And if we really are who we say we are, regardless of the day of the week, then people will be attracted to the church of Christ. I have no problem with saying church of Christ. I'm fifth generation church of Christ, but there's something that we as the church of Christ must understand. People will be attracted to the church of Christ, not by the words outside of your church building but by the words that are imprinted on your heart for the fruit that you and I are represents the tree that we're attached to. Can I tell you something else? I'm done. Every good sermon should have three conclusions. It's also interesting that this whole exhortation is given before I usually used and abused nomenclated context of Romans 16, 16. For Romans 16, 16, please just don't find one verse that identifies with your ideology and then make it your theology. And looking at Romans chapter 12 versus Romans chapter 16, that means even before the churches of Christ saluted anybody, Paul shows us what equivocates and perpetuates true worship. Meaning our worship being of Christ and in Christ as a church of Christ has more to do with what happens on every other day, even before Sunday. And every other day, if it don't look like our Sunday, then our Sunday worship 
doesn't measure up to the true change and transformation that God desires. True worship is a continuous communication with God. A, a continual communion with God. And if we don't have all these prerequisites, then it don't matter what we call the call to worship. I ain't got to be called to worship. I was worshiping before I got here, and I'll be worshiping after I'm gone. If our worship is just concentrated in five acts, then our worship is in fact an act. I long for us to go from the facade of worship to faithful worship. Real worship is not liturgical, but child of God is continual. When will the church learn how to worship? You better check yourself before you wreck yourself. If perchance you are here on this afternoon and you are a child of God, you've sinned, you've strayed away from God's purpose and plan for your life. Come back before it's everlastingly too late. There's nothing you can do to make God say he doesn't love you anymore. If perchance you live beneath your potential, live beneath his purpose, live beneath the way that you know you've been raised, come back to him even now. If perchance there's somebody out there, son of a member of the Lord's church, you come on this afternoon by hearing the word of God. You've heard me. I'm loud enough. Now the question is, do you believe that Jesus Christ is a son of God? If you believe, you repent. If you believe, you'll confess. If you believe, you'll be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. Time is too short. Eternity is too long and hell is too hot for us to continue sitting in our sins. I tell you this and I'm done. It makes no sense to live in hell and then die and go to hell. Don't feel just because you can fill out a lectureship registration that you're going to heaven. Don't feel because you come to sing that you understand worship. Let's make sure that we're always living in such a way to where we're continually sacrificing ourselves out of the mercy of what God has already done for us. Whoever you are, whatever you need, come now and receive what you need, what you need it for. Right now as we stand and sing the hymn of invitation.